Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Out of the Pod, the podcast series by The Brief where we speak to startup founders who dare to dream, build and grow. And on this show we get an insight into their challenges, their milestones and their entrepreneurial journey. In today's episode, I, your host for the show Saheb Singh, will be diving into discussion about not just an innovative startup with an innovative founder, but a sector or an industry which has perhaps been not heard of or explored much altogether especially in a country like india now this market or this industry that i'm referring to concerns or revolves around something called data assets now i'm sure the term data assets does give us some window or some room to make our own assumptions about it especially based on the semantics of the term but it's better to hear about this term from someone who not only understands this concept in and out but it's essentially looking forward to be a market pioneer in this space and that special someone is my guest on today's episode and his name is Abhishek Bali who currently heads Zygram as its co-founder and CEO since 2018 today's episode will focus on Abhishek's unique journey and how Zygram came to be why he chose this space to disrupt it altogether and more importantly it will be about us understanding the importance and potential of the data asset space On that note, I welcome Abhishek to the podcast. Hey Abhishek, how are you doing today? Hi Saheb, I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Very well. I hope COVID has not been too harsh on you. Not really. Uh COVID has actually allowed me to uh, you know sit at home, spend more time with family, and you know there were parts of my house that I've not seen to be very honest because I was in office most of the time. So COVID has actually been for me personally has been all right. Well it's all about finding the silver lining and I'm glad you've done that. So uh before we sort of dive into the discussion I would like to sort of uh, on the very outset of it congratulate you. I was uh, recently going through the news and I saw that Zygram has essentially been recognized as one of the top 10 startups in India. So while I understand it's a, a great honor to get this sort of a recognition but what's the vibe around the team like? How have you all taken the news? Well we're all quite excited. We're very honored. uh it's a it's a great list it's got some very big names in india who are doing uh you know a great job in their own space so in that sense uh we are quite happy uh, the team is fantastic the team understands and realizes that you know this is really an, a collective effort of uh, you know almost about 100 employees that we have right now and uh, so they are very happy they are they're quite thrilled about the fact that though we have just a two year old startup uh we've Uh, we've kind of found our name in that in that list awesome and i'm sure it's onwards and upwards from here well that's the plan and uh, uh, i'm i'm fairly certain we'll make it happen um, but we want to try and take it while we have like a five year vision and a three year vision to what we want to do we we also realize that what makes all of this happen is the ability to execute on a day to day basis of course goes without saying now uh getting into the discussion first of all I want to understand that Zygram in its essence stands as an acronym right uh it's got Zeno Isaac Galton Ramanujan Augustus and McCarthy so um if you were to sort of guide me through as to what why you chose these specific personalities to give the name to your venture and uh, how do you inculcate the qualities or vision of these leaders who inspired this name sure so uh, when we decided to come up with the name uh Uh, you know especially when you sort of setting up a company for that couple of weeks when you're just going through the basic foundational steps of setting up an organization the name becomes very important because it kind of outlines and signifies what you stand for and where is it that you see the company kind of growing 
uh, and what are, what are the kind of values you want to base it on. And that is, that is somewhat true for myself and my co-founders and the co-founding team, because it's sort of old fashioned in that sense where we want to, our aspiration is to set up uh, not just an organization, but an institution. And so we looked at the values of uh, six different people whom we felt, uh, you know, were representative of the of our aspirations, really. So, for example, Zeno was the founder of the Stoic School of Philosophy. If you if you dwell into Stoicism, it is the ability to take, uh, you know, things as they come in life, uh, to uh, to not get too excited about about successes, to not get too blown away by failures, and to look at life in a in a natural way. You know, and so I find that to be very very, very powerful when you're when somebody's trying to build an organization. Isaac Asimov, because of just how inventive he was, and a lot of our work is very inventive in nature. And so we needed that ability to be inventive, to tell stories, uh, to, uh, to have the ability to think beyond what we already know. If you look at Sir Francis Galton, you know, he was the, he's possibly the greatest polymaths of our time. So he's worked across, dabbled in different sciences. And a lot of our work is that it's very multidisciplinary. Um, there are also certain other aspects of Sir Francis Galton. So, for example, he's he was involved in 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 certain uh, in in certain areas of science at his time, which were quite uh, controversial. Um, and that kind of also goes on to tell us that there is a moral aspect of science, and then there is a practical aspect of science, and one must always make sure that they both kind of go together. Ramanujan is there not so much because uh, of his clear Indian uh, connection, but because he's a self-trained mathematician. And for a lot of our work, we want people, we look for people who can, uh, you know, train themselves, learn on their own. They're not dependent on formal institutions of training to be able to, to get built up. If you look at Augustus, Augustus was the founder of the Roman Empire. And so we're looking at building institutions and he had the ability to think of uh, Pax Romana, which led to some 200 years, 300 years of peace in and around that Asia, which allowed him to create around the Romans to create this massive empire. And finally, John McCarthy, who is considered the father of AI, but really the, the reason why he's here is because he was able to sell the idea of artificial intelligence to potential funders in the 60s and 70s, when it was just such a, uh, such a new concept. And so he's here not just because of AI, but because of the ability to sell a concept that is you know, still ill-formed. And that's, I think that's really where all these six individuals come together. I think that's a brilliant thought. And uh, the three which essentially stand out to me uh, from your answer are Isaac, Augustus and McCarthy. Isaac, because you talk about being inventive and you do things that are inventive. Augustus, because uh, perhaps you're looking to build an empire of your own in this space. And McCarthy, of course, because I believe AI is a huge part of what you do, right? So uh, if I were to sort of break things down one by one, I'd like to start off by understanding and giving the listeners a chance to understand that when we say data assets, what do data assets actually mean if we were to speak in layman terms? And how important are they in today's day and age? What is their significance? Sure. So I think we've often heard of the term, you know, data is the new oil, data is an asset. And I, I think those phrases have been around for many, many years. In fact, the first time I heard uh, you know, the fact that data is an asset for some 10, 15 years back. But as we, as I dwell deeper into this space uh, with my, uh, you know, with my current team, which used to work with me a couple, a couple of years back, uh, we kind of realized that to, to 
clearly identified data uh, and make it an asset, it has to have a couple of features. So those features are that it should be uh, validated, it should be structured, should be high quality, it should be maintainable. Um, and when you have these features in a database or a data asset or a data list, it truly becomes an asset because then you can use it in a productive manner. If I was to use an analogy, I mean, think about, uh, you know, a piece of land in the middle of nowhere. It is absolutely unproductive. Nothing can grow there. Uh, nothing can really, uh, nothing can really happen. But if you put a well there, if you put some building materials there, if you set up a factory there, suddenly that piece of land becomes productive, even in accounting terms, even in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of economic outcomes, in terms of social outcomes. Data is a little bit like that. It has to have these features. Um, and I think if I was to use an example, let's use the example of, say, no-fly lists, right? So when you get onto, uh, you know, an, uh, an airplane, your name in places like the US or UK, now even India, is checked against a list of people who are not allowed to fly. And how they do that is uh, you have an airline or you have a ticketing agent or you have an e-commerce company or somebody else is trying to sell you a, sell you a ticket. Um, they have a list that is issued by the government and they need to now make sure that uh, this person does not board a flight because if they do, then that's against the law and there are fines and penalties and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, what happens is that, that many of these uh, governments, especially in the US, for example, they just give out a name. So let's say if I take your name, Sahib, and I put Sahib Singh and I put maybe one more identifier, let's say, or age, uh, they would be hundreds if not thousands of such sahib sings and so what has happened what usually happens is in uh, in even in the us a lot of people who are not ident who are not supposed to be on the no fly list find it difficult to fly right so uh, how what a data asset would do is that an organization like ours would take the would take over the responsibility of of maintaining managing extracting that data creating more detailed profiles of people so that when an e-commerce company or a flight company or an insurance company or a ticketing company does provide ticket to, to, the, to the right kind of Sahib Singh, uh, they are able to, with confidence, allow that person to fly. And, and, and it's only the wrong set of people or the people who have been put on the no-fly list by the government who can get stopped. So that really is an example of a, of a data asset working in real life. Brilliant. So in its essence, would you say that data asset uh, could be broken down to something which is value additive data? Yes. I mean, not just value additive, but I, I what I would say is that it has long term residual value. Right. So uh, there's a lot of data which uh, which adds value today. But when you create a data asset, you want that data asset to not just create value today, you want it to the same set of data points to be able to create value over a longer period of time, maybe a year, two years, three years, five years. Uh, so that really is a data asset. And even in data, there is two types of data that we are more that that we can kind of segregate them. One is the real-time data. So if you look at stock prices, you know, tickers. Now that's real-time data that you need to use now. But once that time has gone by, the stock price of something three days back may not be really that valuable. In fact, it may have no value whatsoever. But if I was to collect that data for 20 years or 30 years, and I was able to aggregate stock movements for metals or for um, diamonds or for uh, shares, 
suddenly that analysis and that retrospective analysis that data has it becomes very very valuable right so the same set of data but how it is stored how is it managed how is it put together and how is it validated that differentiates real time data versus data assets now <clears throat> if i were to sort of uh, go into more detail as to how data and data assets came to be and how their evolution came to be we can see that as a building block data on its own has become more and more crucial in today's businesses especially when we look at decision making on various levels data insights play a very important role right and in your career i believe which has mirrored the evolution of data so far what would you say have been the landmark changes which led you to a set up zygram and b what kind of changes have you noticed which you see can play a bigger part in the future journey of data assets sure so when i uh, left b school i started work for access bank and when i was in access bank uh, i used to be part of a business called supply chain finance and there uh, a lot of decisions were taken on giving credits or loans to a dealer or a distributor or a vendor uh, effectively people who were part of a supply chain of a larger organization and when i saw that decision making process even as a young mba graduate who kind of got went out uh, you know kind of got into the business just a few months after passing out i saw that the uh, that the credit models that were being applied were fairly old school right you had to give your balance sheet which was already 6 uh, months old or 1 year old and you had to look at the background of the person and then you had to effectively make an educated guess to try and figure out you know what is the limit that uh, can be given to a dealer or distributor who are on very big businesses now when that decision making was happening considering indian banking at the time and even today most bankers are very conservative so if a person really needs say uh, you know 100 million rupees they end up only giving 70 million rupees and the reason why they do that is because they don't have the adequate data and the background to be able to make a decision on whether that 70 million rupees can go up to 80 million rupees or 85 million so they're really keeping money on the table or in certain cases as you can see with the npa problem the non performing assets problem there's not enough data to make a good decision and so you end up you know lending out more money so when i saw the entire process i realized that we were that in that bank we were pushing out lots of loans and we didn't have the right data to be able to make the decision and and bankers were very frustrated by it but we didn't have alternative data that we have right now to be able to make that those decisions after that i went on to dun and brad street which is effectively the oldest data company in the world it's about a uh, from if i remember about 180 years old and uh, dun and brad street uh, was very proud about the fact that is very proud about the fact that abraham lincoln used to be an employee of theirs so that was like their 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 claim there so they're a 180 year old company and in india uh, i used to manage some part of the business for them and what i realized was that we were selling reports on organizations and entities as background checks so that's financial checks or and you know the number of reports that people started by people started buying over the time that i was there kept on increasing the price per report kept on reducing because people said hey we're buying in bulk but paradoxically very few people were actually reading the report Uh, that really nobody worried about because hey we were selling so many reports it was all fine but as i thought more and more about it i asked people why they were doing it and they said that you know listen we don't have the time to go through these reports we don't have the time to make sense of all that is printed on on a piece of paper we just quickly need the insights and that's when you saw i think a lot of the insights analytics wave kind of come over into india 
that was also the time uh, when I kind of shifted from done that treatment to BMR Advisors. BMR Advisors uh, was one of the most well-regarded brands in India when it came to uh, professional services, data, AML, so on and so forth. And I joined the risk team, uh, which did data and AML work. And that's when I realized that the reason why people were not buying so many reports was because decisions were quickly being taken over by machines. So today, machines take most of the decision, right? Your ticketing information, how much credit you should be given, how much uh, personal loan you should be given, even what kind of movie ticket you should get. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is being now done by machines. And so with decisions being taken over by machines, people are taking a step back. So most decisions are either completely being taken by a machine or being assisted by a machine. And what that meant was machine, as, as we all know, machines don't require reports. They don't require printed things on a piece of paper. They need a stream of data. They need crunchable, structured data to be able to make those decisions. And so that's when uh, I got into the data asset space because there are a lot of our clients in, in, in the US, in Europe, in India, who wanted to create high quality data assets so that then uh, you know, the machines could make the decisions that they wanted to. And these have become very valuable over time. And then when BMR got acquired by KPMG, I kind of went to KPMG and I worked there for a couple of years. And the same trend happened there. We saw the same thing happen in banking. We saw the same thing happening in insurance. We saw the same thing happening in e-commerce. I was uh, I used to lead a lot of work for anti-money laundering uh, and risk. And their AML compliance, which is a big deal globally, um, is primarily around high quality data. Your KYC checking whether you're, you know, you're on some sanctions list, checking whether you're a terrorist or not, checking whether you're, you're the right kind of uh, person to do business with or not. All of that is data driven. And so with this entire evolution, you know, I started off as, as a banker who, real, who saw bankers getting frustrated by lack of data. And finally, I kind of ended at KPMG just before this, where I saw companies just hungry for high quality data and willing to put good money uh, to be able to invest in those. And I think that's really where the evolution has happened. So uh, given your career trajectory over these past years, would you say that uh, data assets can be a limitedly applied to the financial sector or the BFSI sector or the e-commerce space for that matter? Or do you think data assets can essentially be implemented all across sectors and all across industries? Theoretically, they can be applied anywhere. Uh, but I think there are a couple of things that we look at when we look at the applicability or the economics of application of a data asset. So one is we look at the A, the economic value of a decision being taken. So what that means is if the decision I'm taking is of very high economic value, like a mergers and acquisition, then usually people end up still being part of that process, right? But if the economic value of the decision is very low so that it is no longer viable for a person to take that decision on a repeated manner, that's where data assets play a big role and machines play a big role. Uh, one is that. Second is the frequency of that decision being taken. If a decision of a certain decision is only going to be taken once a year, you're not going to build a data asset or a, or a data model or a, or a machine learning model to be able to take that decision because it doesn't make sense. But if you have to take decisions at the rate of hundreds and thousands of millions, like in the case of transaction or in the case of credit, then you would need to apply data assets and algorithms and machine learning. And these guys kind of go hand in hand. So I think those are the two things that we look at in terms of the economic value of the decision and the frequency of that decision. And the third is that we look at is the 
करेक्ट इको सिस्टम ऑफ टेक्नोलॉजी अराउंड दैट डिसीजन राइट आर दे मशीन ऑलरेडी अवेलेबल आर दे मशीन लर्निंग मॉडल्स ऑलरेडी अवेलेबल Uh, is is it even a advanced stage? For so, for example, maybe this may not work very well in the cement manufacturing industry because there aren't too many technologies in the digital space in that in that area, right? So you really can't apply digital assets there. And the last thing that we look at is uh, regulatory requirements. So the more regulatory driven a space is, the more the dependency on high quality data, um, and and that's really what we look at. So these are the four things that we look at. Uh, to answer your 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 first question on what are the sectors as of right now there are three sectors <coughs> that we can clearly see where data assets are applied across the board the first one is uh, bfsi financial services the second one is pharma and medical and the third one is energy and if you really think about it all three of these sectors follow the have those qualities those four qualities that i spoke about right the economic Amount, the economic value of the decision being taken, the frequency of the decision being taken, the regulatory, uh, the regulatory push, the, they're very regulatory driven, and finally the technology is available. So I think these these three areas are quite big, but we can see many more areas sort of come into this fold over the next decade or so. Very interesting. So uh, when you mention these three sectors, uh, pharma, energy, and BFSI. even across these three sectors there are companies and organizations across various scales a company could be an msme it could be an mnc and uh, it could have various levels of technological implementation or technological integration uh, at various levels too vertically or horizontally now uh, do you think that it is necessary for you to sort of classify them and then assess the criticality with which data asset management is needed in these companies and uh, how do you classify them in the first place and uh, how important is it for these companies to have this sort of a technological integration if they are in this sector so i think the rule of thumb the larger the organization the more the the capability the need and the desire for uh, for data assets in general is is what we've seen right there, there are a couple of exceptions of course uh, some of them being you know uh maybe the public sector unit banks uh or so, some of the public or some of the larger larger old school organizations but in general if you are a large global sprawling organization the dependency on data assets is definitely something that we will see simply because life becomes just so much more easier and it's also very cost effective on the on the medium to long term so that's one the second thing that we kind of uh look at them as based on the culture that they have right so culture plays a big part of uh you know a big role in the in the entire space of digital transformation and as you're moving from having low dependency or no dependency on data assets to high dependency on data assets you look it is definitely a digital transformation exercise that needs to be carried out within the organization you know in general and so the cultural a need and the cultural driver to want that and have that that becomes a big thing and what we've seen is organizations who are looking at growing at a certain pace organizations who have aspirations to be global and organizations who have aspirations to be more invested in r&d in the future will have that culture uh, you know as the overarching kind of theme in in that place so that's two the third is uh, we definitely look at Uh, you know what is the amount of you know what are the other drivers so for example if you uh, are backed by an institutional investor if you are 
backed by a venture capital firm or if you just had an ipo you look at much of that money being raised from the point of view of developing assets or develop deployment in investments and data asset and the infrastructure around it is intrinsically an investment right so those are the two three things that we look at those are the two three categorizations we do in terms of size um, i'd say if you're a, if you're an msme if you're a, if you're a, you know micro or a, uh, or a, or a medium organization not sorry really medium but if you're a small organization many organizations may not have the wherewithal uh, to kind of go you know dive into this head first they may take some time they may raise some money or they may uh, create their own small data assets for them to grow but our clients and where we've seen successes if you're a small organizations if you're you know even if you're we've had clients who have been two people companies or one person companies in the us who've raised millions of dollars on the back of the data assets and products that we've created for them so you you can be micro or you can be small uh, but you need to have the capacity and the the ambition to be able to raise money to be able to make that product uh, to be able to make that data asset as the core of your organization very interesting so uh, when you mention the aspect of uh, aspirations to uh, go global and uh, this could be one of those things that perhaps you as an entrepreneur a capitalized on right and b aside from the fact that you mentioned that there is a lack of good data or lack of great you know valuable data what other key challenges did you notice or did you identify that led you to establish zagram in the first place for these kind of companies and to sort of add more value to the business that they were doing and more importantly what was your thought process uh, setting up a business despite your career in you know these big organizations previously and when you started off as uh, somebody somebody who's been into hotel management and what was the transition like sure so um uh, my hotel management to begin with uh, you know happened just like i think it happens for most uh, 18 year olds or 19 year olds who are getting out of school by just by accident right because very few of us or at least i was absolutely unclear about what i was going to do in life and uh, uh, i was genuinely okay student i was i was actually all right and uh, you know my father walks in one day when i'm i think i was lying down on the bed or something and he says hey fill this form up and i didn't really ask him why and i kind of filled the form up and gave the exam and uh, i did all right so i i got into hotel management those two three years in hotel management were great but it also what is most amazing about the experience was that it opened up the eyes of you know an otherwise coddled middle class boy who's who's lived a, a very uh, you know well made well constructed life around himself and i was kind of exposed to you know uh, for lack of better word money in the, for the first time in my life because my father was in the army you know we we moved around across the world across not the world but in india and while that's a great setup you don't get the exposure to civilian life you don't get the exposure to industry you don't get the exposure to what's happening really uh, you know on the ground and so i got that exposure and that was great i worked for a couple of years actually in the hotel so i worked in chennai i worked in calcutta and those were amazing exposures because you could see in the same talking about 2006 to 2008 that india was really booming at that point of time i mean the kind of heady optimism that or heady optimism that i saw in 2006 2007 you know you could literally poke it with uh, a fork 
in the middle of the air and you could you could poke that optimism in the middle of the air that was how, that was how thick and heavy it was and then 2008 came in the crash came in i we didn't really feel the crash so much in the us that happened i mean most people think of it as a as a seminal time uh, in india but really most people didn't feel it that much and i decided to just go out and do my mba i did my mba those two years when my mba were very good i worked i did a lot of work i, I kind of worked on a lot of projects and that gave me more understanding of the vc space of the data space of the consulting space of you know many other things that you otherwise don't get and as i kind of went through this journey like i spoke about from access bank to dun and bradstreet to bmr to kpmg i think one thing that became very clear is that in india we have a couple of great advantages right we are inherently as you know for lack of better word a civilization our minds are oriented towards the academic towards you know taking up things that are somewhat esoteric and putting them in our heads and visualizing them as as a civilization we are very good at visualizing stuff right so data actually comes naturally to us because of our background in science our background in mathematics our background in technology it's far more pervasive and so that that that's what has actually allowed us in india and not many people know this most indians uh, or most folks globally who are data scientists or in the data asset space or in the statistics space or mathematics space actually come from india india uh, china and then russia right so these are the three three people who kind of have taken over the space now when i was in kpmg and before that bmr advisors what i realized was the data asset space required a multidisciplinary approach right you you cannot just build a technology company and say all right now i'm going to work on data because there are so many other aspects to it and with that in mind i think it it became clear to me that Uh, I always wanted to do something of my own. I've never had. I'm, I'm not. Uh, you know. I, I don't think I was sharp enough to come up with a great, credible idea just out of college. So I kind of took ten, eleven, twelve years to, uh, you know, figure out if uh, what I wanted to do while I was working. And I realized that data assets is a space that I understand uniquely. I worked in it for about ten odd years, and a multidisciplinary approach has not really been taken by anyone that I knew of globally, not just in India, but globally. and uh, the right place to set it up was outside of you know great institutions like kpmg you know may not be the best place for for trying out some of these ideas which are which can fail right but you need you need people from engineering you need people from data science you need people from research you need people from solutions you need people from a varied set of backgrounds for it to happen and so that's when i decided to kind of you know take take a little take a little bit of a leap i was fortunate enough to get a few of the folks who have worked with me for many many years to also you know put in put their faith in me take this take this decision of leaving kpmg for you know a three person four person operation in some time in in 2018 i think i think to some extent that's kind of paid off awesome so if you were to sort of dive more into how zygram is doing as of now and what were the long term goals which you set out with have they changed over the years so if you could just shed some light on that uh, that'd be great sure so uh, goals for me in my limited experience definitely change because realities change and more importantly new opportunities open up and old opportunities that you are kind of you know aiming for uh, they uh, they don't they don't look that great anymore in a couple of years opportunities you know somebody once told me are is a, are a little bit like like stars right so many many of the stars that you're seeing right on the sky are, are millions of light years away they've all probably already exploded they've already gone they're already dust 
but you look at them as stars and you look at them as aspirations and people smart people ambitious people people who set up great businesses they realize that that in most cases one has to be able to identify a trend or a, or a wave before it has started or just at the beginning of that wave to take great advantage of it and so our goals have also changed as an overarching theme we are absolutely clear we want to be the best data asset company in the world and i'm not and we are absolutely dead set certain on that overarching theme of of our approach uh, that really is, is a is a goal we see data assets as being relevant as being powerful as being something that, are, that is going to create long term value at least for the next couple of decades and we want to be the best in the world at that now that's the that's the that's the goal really that there is but in terms of how we've changed i think we we started with four people like i like i mentioned and today we are about 105 uh, uh we probably hit 200 sometime next year um we have have grown quite significantly uh, you know uh, multiples each year more importantly we are uh, at present we are completely self funded so we uh, you know we we've not raised any money we've not raised any funds uh, we've we've been able to we are very fortunate that the clients have reposed their faith in us and uh, you know people customers have forced their uh, you know kind of put their faith in us to for us to be able to grow organically and so that's that's really where we are so we today have uh, a very healthy mix of researchers of consultants uh, or rather consultants who come in from organizations like the big four and come here and become solutions experts or become managers and become project leads we have a couple of products which are in the pipeline we have two products that have already been released um and uh, you know we most of our clients are based out of the us and primarily out of the us right so uh, so i think in that sense we've met with that success uh, over the last in just over about 2 years right now i think that's wonderful and that's almost a picture perfect story which you've just narrated to me right now but uh... coming to uh, you know a more from a learning curve aspect and uh, over the journey which you've had over the years let's say establishing a team identifying you know your niche your space and sort of you know disrupting that i'm sure there comes a, a, a steep learning curve with it as well considering you changed lanes and you know you switched careers and everything but at the end of the day if, if you were to sort of let's say uh, tell me who out of uh, your customer base or yourself had the bigger learning curve out of this was it you as an organization or as a founder who is trying to percolate the idea of data assets and their importance or was it the consumer base or your customer base that you were targeting that how important is data asset management to their company and uh, what is the long term value which these data assets can bring to them sure so i am of the opinion that in any great relationship whether it's a p2b relationship or whether it's a personal relationship a great relationship is almost always defined by you know a give and take of of learning of experiences of enriching both the entities that are involved and this is also very true for our experience where we have learned a lot from our clients right we, because our clients will come in from a way different set of spaces so one client is um you know a very large data company the other one is a company that's focused in the marijuana and cannabis space in 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 the in the us the third one is in the legal tech space you know 
someone else is in the consulting space. One of them is a big four organization. So when you look at those, you get really great perspectives from, uh, from all these type of organizations. And I think that's something that we really look forward to because it just, you know, it takes us to a very different level as a young organization. The, the ability to have the kind of depth and exposure to so many clients and we really look forward to it. I think where we definitely add value is that we are absolutely clear that there is there are very few people in the world who know data assets the way that we do, the way that Zygram does, right? And so when it comes to uh, handholding, to some extent educating and collaborating with our, uh, with our customers and with our clients, from the perspective of data assets and the associated technologies of data science, engineering, platform development, application development, uh, research, KYC, anti-money laundering compliance, PEPs, we probably you know, end up offering a lot more in these interactions. And we are able to elevate the understanding of our clients and the stakeholders in those quite naturally. So in a sense, we do a lot of give and take in these relationships where we get a lot of knowledge about their industries, their, their areas, their focus areas, their, you know, what's happening in the, those spaces so that we are able to enrich um, and enable our teams better, uh, you know, be able to become far better professionals, far better, a far better company. But we definitely add a lot of value when it comes to education. And in most cases, that is what is required because when you kind of talk to Zygram and you talk to us, you are absolutely aware that uh, in most cases, data assets is a new space for you. And therefore, the technologies, the ecosystem, the requirements, the you know, all of that is going to be something that is new. And we want to make sure that we are able to offer that support and that knowledge to our, to our customers and our clients. So uh, when you say that, that you know data assets like nobody else does, so uh, would you say that this has proved to be a, a great first mover advantage, number one? And uh, more importantly, when you mention that, and that's that's an interesting take back from your previous answer, that when you say that there is a consulting company and there's a big four organization, etc., who you've dealt with and who've been your clients, there is a high level of human dependency in these kind of firms, especially consultancy businesses for that matter. So how do data assets come into the picture where there is a lot of human stakeholders involved? And are there ways in which Zygram or companies similar to yours have been adding value in this particular aspect like you mentioned? I would say is that when we look at these organizations like the big four organizations or the big three consulting firms, what they've, in my opinion, what they've mastered is they've mastered institutionally the art of solving business problems, right? And, and that's something which most people don't think about. Most people kind of underplay in today's date but they've mastered the art of doing that. And when we work with them as partners, as providers, we realize that, that here is a set of people who have, who have spent decades and decades in terms of partners, in terms of you know, the directors that are there, in terms of the whole set of human intelligence that they've kind of gathered. And they are there to solve business problems for their clients. Now, if you think about you know, the role that, that Zygram plays, the Zygram plays the role of solving a type of problem in the three sectors that I've mentioned, BFSI, pharma and healthcare and energy and a couple of others that are emerging, but also for specific use cases. So what we end up doing is we end up working with uh, the big four companies or, you know, the consulting company to be able to take 
data assets as a part of the of the solution to their end clients and there what happens is that while say for example if it's a anti money laundering compliance uh, program now large banks have been fined in the last 20 years have been fined you know over 60 billion dollars in total because of lack of compliance in anti money laundering so the big four institutions have been at the forefront along with many other technology companies in solving those and setting up those programs making sure basically that after you know 911 we don't have another incidents of terrorism which is funded uh, through banking channels and so that's where a lot of the focus is now when you think about that there are so many moving parts in anti money laundering and i've been part of global engagements there in the you know in the past as well where we've set up these programs for them when you have to do that you are looking at building policies you are looking at building solutions you are looking at building a structure hierarchy training and data assets is one component of that entire uh, of that entire solution now the big four are great at solving problems but when it comes to data assets many of them choose to come to us because then we are able to uh, you know because we are specialists in that just like you would you know uh, you would go to say a, a laptop vendor or just like you would go to uh, you know an insurance vendor or just like you would go to someone else to be able to fit these these pieces into a puzzle and i think that's how we work with them we we are one part of the puzzle that the big four organizations kind of take with them to be able to solve it for their clients so it's interesting that you've managed to find this sort of a niche uh, service provision or this sort of product provision to you know help these kind of organizations and uh, was it the plan at first to you know let's say have one offering and then diversify as you go forward or did you all start off with a catalog of services and then narrowed it down well of course uh, we always had a plan but like the the great saying goes everybody has a plan till they get hit in the face and so uh, just like with every other you know every startup or any organization uh, we've we've taken our hits in the face every now and then and so we've had to change that plan but really what we were able to do is we had a couple of core competencies beyond you know which are in terms of the the areas that we worked in so we worked extensively in like as a banking and financial services which includes a hyper focus on anti money laundering risk compliance due diligence so what we did was we kind of went out and built data assets for those use cases a because it allowed us to have that context in place to have the business context in place right as you may as you may know a lot of startups with great founders fantastic people great capabilities often don't end up seeing the kind of success that they do that they want to because uh, they're not able to solve a credible problem or they don't have enough context about a credible problem so they're not able to apply their capabilities to that problem we didn't want to kind of fall into that trap we were very aware of that so we played to our strengths in the beginning and we said and we continue to play to those strengths which is we are going to build data assets and we are going to focus on risk compliance banking uh, financial services kyc due diligence those areas which are very very data heavy and so we started off with that and we built products on that we built this thing on that we also had clients who you know for example peps politically exposed persons is a big space in the aml in the aml kind of ecosystem and so we we worked there we were able to raise a product we were able to get a big client in there and so with that kind of approach we were able to establish at least a baseline of success and a baseline of business activity 
which has now allowed us to kind of look into legal tech. It's allowed us to look into pharma. It's allowed us to look into energy. It's allowed us to do a couple of you know really fascinating things. That has been the approach that we've taken till now. But I have no doubt that as the world changes, which it almost always does, we'll have to modify and tweak this. So uh, speaking of modifications and speaking how the world has changed, if we straight up come to the point of COVID-19, which has been pretty much a world-changing event on its own, not just from the perspective of businesses, but from the perspective of understanding the very core value of human life. Uh, I think COVID-19 has shed light on a lot of factors for companies and businesses and economies, which weren't essentially caught by the eye before. Now, do you think it has had this sort of an impact on the data asset space as well? Or uh, do you think there's a pattern as to how things will be in a pre-COVID, post-COVID world? Or if I were to, let's say, put the current terms into context, uh, will there be a change in a pre-vaccine versus post-vaccine scenario? I think I would not have the ability to foresee at this point of time on what a post-vaccine world will look like, simply because one has to see uh, what the mass impact of these vaccines are and how do they get rolled out. Uh, the actual execution of the rollout of the vaccine is going to take some time. So with that in mind, I don't see personally the, the vaccine impact kind of trickling down on an ongoing basis that will, you know, impacting real world health and so on and so forth till the, till the end of 2021. That's my educated guess. But Definitely the world has changed pre and post COVID. That is for sure. Uh, some things that we thought will massively change, I don't think will change that much. And I remember, uh, you know, just like many other people getting on a call with friends, with, with business colleagues, with others, and kind of discussing ad nauseum what the changes in the world were going to be. In fact, I wrote like a small article about it. And uh, we were all trying to play soothsayers at that point of time. Some of those things have gone, have, have kind of predictively come true. Most have not. But what has happened post-COVID is, def is that the world has definitely increased their reliance on digitization and data. Right? That reliance has gone up. So when I say digital, you know, whether it's digital payments, whether it's digital shopping, whether it's uh, kind of accessing content online, that has definitely happened and that's not i don't think that's going to taper off in fact that's that's just the catalyst that those those areas were primed for uh, data is exactly the same you now need to make decisions with a high degree of confidence because there is not too much of a margin of failure there are hedge funds out there there are uh, banks out there who've made a lot of money because they had access to what we call alternative data which means data satellites, heat signatures, job listings, traffic traffic movement to be able to predict when certain economies will open up, when certain economies will shut down, when kind of companies will do it. And they've actually used that to become quite wealthy over this time. So when you look at that, there's a whole host of banks and funds and organizations who are now looking at consuming data by the boatloads because they see real tangible value, economic value in that. And so that's kind of taken a big uptick. Uh, a good example is, you know, satellite imagery. Satellite imagery was a set, steadily growing space and has absolutely boomed in the post-COVID times. Why? Because people can't travel anymore. So if you've got an oil rig somewhere, if you've got a factory somewhere, if you've got a if you've got a you know shop somewhere, how else will you 
be able to know what the condition of that asset is. So except for satellites, and satellites have gotten cheaper over time. So data consumption has grown up, data dependency has grown up, data acceptability has grown up, digitization has definitely taken a big jump up, and digital transformation is where I definitely see investments going in right now. And with that, naturally, the space is going to kind of go up. So anybody who's in this ecosystem, in the general ecosystem, uh, is probably going to see better days unless and until you know, something new happens. That, that is, at least is how I see things moving right now. It's interesting that you mention the dependency on data and digital transformation because a lot of companies owe to the kind of remote working that they've been forced to adapt into and they've been forced to adopt as a practice uh, is something that they've been undertaking a lot right now be it integrating cloud software or be it integrating any form of remote co-working facilities, digital transformation has been a big buzzword or, or something which has caught a lot of eye these days, right? So uh, how would you say that uh, the role of data assets is in this digital transformation aspect? And how do you see its significance increasing over time? Digital transformation really means that you're moving uh, to a more digital dependent decision-making backbone for your organization. It means ERPs, it means decision systems, it means MISs, it means uh, dashboards, it means automation, it means all of that, right? Th that's really what it is. And so if the number of machines per decision increase, if the, for efficiency, for better capabilities, for more resilience, for high quality decisions, um, the amount of data that you that will get consumed will and which will get generated and which will get consumed is going to grow up accordingly. In fact, it's going to grow up exponentially because each machine will end up consuming an exponential amount of data over time as processing power increases. So when digital transformation happens, a company is saying, you know what, the old way of doing things, which was more manual, uh, more people dependent, more, more human intervention dependent, has to change and we have to become more digitally enabled. And in most cases, that what that means is ERPs. And if anybody's dealt with ERPs, and you know, ERPs is a is a fascinating topic in its own. The amount of data consumed, generated, and processed is just mind-blowing. But more importantly, what that would mean is that the, the data that is going into the systems cannot be low quality. It has to be high quality, otherwise, business decisions don't get made very well. And so there is investment money and a culture uh, which is getting developed, which says we want high quality data. Otherwise, the digital transformation that we've kind of put in place is not going to be as successful as it otherwise would be. Interesting. So uh, we can definitely see data assets becoming a really important cog in the wheel as to how the world becomes a lot more digital. And uh, if I were to sort of close the podcast on this very note, what would be your final closing remarks uh, about the space? about the industry, about, you know, the importance uh, of data assets and how it's going, uh, going to become a lot more digital in the next years and in the next decades. And uh, if you were to, let's say, give a small message to the aspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to enter the data asset space, what would that be? I see the data asset space growing really fast into something very, very credible. It is already quite credible, but into something very substantial in the next uh, five to six years. Uh, a, good, a great point there being, you know, the recent acquisition of IHS market by, I think, S&P Global, which happened at, a, I think, a $44 billion 
value. And those are basically effectively two data companies that are getting merged or one is buying the other. There have been multi-billion dollar consolidations happening in the space. And the reason for that is because large organizations across the world understand that data assets and those who control data, those who control high quality data are going to have um, a huge competitive advantage going forward. So I definitely see this space growing. I see the space growing in many, many new areas, um, apart from just the two, three sectors that I mentioned. We will see it becoming pervasive across the board. So I'm actually quite excited. I'm, I'm, I'm hugely kicked about, uh, you know, the space and the capabilities and, and, the, and the expectations that people have of us as far as the data asset space is concerned. Now, for I think anybody who's looking at getting into this space or into an allied space, I'd say is one is definitely have your basics in place. So the basics are a deep understanding, credible understanding of data, a credible understanding of data science, a credible understanding of technologies and how they apply, how to build applications. Because without these in, these building blocks in place and the, the right kind of talent, uh, it becomes quite difficult to kind of proceed going further. That's one. Two is to begin with, you know, just I suppose in this in the same way that I have done or that we've done at Zyga, pick, uh, you know, an area of comfort, an area of expertise, a sector of expertise where you want to build data assets. That's two. And third is execute, 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 because data is one of those places where, you know, uh, after after a great evening or during a great evening, everybody can have, you know, a huge multiple of ideas. Everybody's got great ideas in this space. But the guys who are going to do well and the ones that at least I have seen from the limited time that I've spent here doing extremely well in the data space are the ones who can just execute extremely well. Uh, and so those will be my sort of three small pieces of advice. Awesome. And on that wonderful note, uh, I would like to conclude this podcast and thank you for joining me on this episode of Out of the Pod. It has been an absolute pleasure to host you, Abhishek. Thanks, Ivan. I hope you have a you know a great year ahead, twenty twenty one. Thank you so much. It has been absolutely wonderful to have this discussion. I'm sure our listeners have a lot of takeaways from this, and there is a lot more value which they'll understand that how data assets play an important role in the organizations of the future. Once again, thank you for joining me on this podcast. As for the listeners who are listening to this episode. You know what to do. Like, share and subscribe is the usual drill. Check out all our other episodes of Out of the Pot and our other podcast series, Everything Business on thebrief.co.in. This is your host, Sahib Singh, signing off.